Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. We are in a new teaching series today, so if you're new with us or newer with us, it's a good time to be jumping in because we're all starting on a fresh page, and so we're glad to have you with us. This series is going to be called Jesus Is, and we're going to be looking at some specific things about what we believe about Jesus, how we react to Jesus. And so if you like to take notes, I want to start off this morning with three things that you're going to see as a part of this series, so you can just jump right in, writing some things down, or if you use our app to take notes, if you're following along at home, we love for you to engage with with us on our app and do that. And so here's the things we want you to know. Number one, who is Jesus? That's one of the questions we're going to be asking in this series. Number two is what's he like? What does it look like to have a relationship with him? And then how does he change us? How does knowing him change us? Those are the three things we're going to be talking about throughout this series. Who is Jesus? There are some misconceptions about who Jesus is. He's got a lot of popularity. He's known in our world, but there are people who just have misconceptions about who Jesus really is. And people that would put him as one of the most popular figures in all of history and yet know very little about him. That they know he was a historical figure, that he's got all kinds of things around him, the Christian religion and all these different things, but they simply don't know much about him. Or the things that they do know about him maybe aren't true. And so we're going to ask this question, who is Jesus really? And so here's something that A.W. Tozer said. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God, when we think about Jesus, is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis would take that one step further and say the most important thing in all of life really is not what we think about Jesus or what we think about God, but what God thinks about us. And so there are these ideas that we need to come to grips with. Who is Jesus? What do we know about him? And how does knowing him change us? That's what we want to dive into. And so this morning, we're going to come face to face with several passages of scripture that really will address the idea that Jesus is God. He's not just a popular figure in history. He's not just a good moral teacher, but he is God. And so here's some things that I hope will come about as we do this. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus already, my hope is that this series solidifies what you already believe as someone who's walked with Jesus and placed your faith in him. That coming off of this series, you can go, yeah, man, that just really stirred me and motivated me and helped me understand even more deeply what I believe and what I've been walking in throughout my life as a follower of Jesus. I hope that's one thing that gets accomplished. Number two is this, to challenge you to see Jesus in a new light and maybe change your view of him. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, if you don't believe Jesus is God, if you haven't really embraced the teachings of Jesus, the ideas of Jesus, that this series would help change your view on some of those things and would help show you some things in a new light. And then last, I hope that this offers evidence that you can not only know about Jesus factually, but have a relationship with him that changes you. 
Because again, there are a lot of people who know a lot of things about Jesus. The Bible even says that the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder, they tremble, but they are not changed by him. They don't follow him. And so I hope in our lives, as we learn to follow Jesus, that it doesn't just become something that we know factual information about him, but that it changes us. It revolutionizes our lives from the inside out. Uh, In today's world, it's perfectly acceptable for people to say, oh yes, Jesus was a historical figure. We believe that. We have evidence of all those things. But I put him on the same level as a good moral teacher like Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad. Like people who allowed others to embrace a religious idea, to pursue religious belief, to look at religious notions, to have a system of faith. But they were just good, wise, moral teachers that helped us live life on a different level. Right? And so a lot of people put Jesus in that category. But Jesus is so different from every other religious leader and every other religious system. Christianity is different because Jesus actually claimed to be God. Confucius did not claim that. Muhammad did not claim that. The Buddha did not claim that. No one else claims to be God except people who are a little bit on the crazy side. And so maybe some people look at that and go, well, then if Jesus claimed to be God, maybe he was on the crazy side too. Well, maybe he was, but we're going to look at some things and just ask these questions. Does Jesus claim to be God? Where no one else does that. No other religious leaders do that, but Jesus does. And so as Paul writes letters to the early church, he wanted to make sure that they understood more than just what Jesus taught but who Jesus is. So if you have a Bible this morning, look at Colossians chapter one, and we're going to look at the the verses 15 through 20 to start with. Uh, and, And so when Paul writes these letters, he wants people to know not just what Jesus taught, but who Jesus is. Uh, there's a professor at Oxford university named Alistair McGrath. He's a professor of science and religion. And he says that the same thing Paul teaches in his doctrines 2000 years ago to the church are what um, people need to wrestle with now. So McGrath says this, the challenge posed to every succeeding generation by the New Testament witness to Jesus is not so much what did he teach, but who is he and what is his relevance for us? And so that's where we really want to ask this question. What is this teaching that Jesus had? But beyond that, who is Jesus and what's his relevance to my life, right? That's what everybody wants to really know. Like, if I'm going to follow this guy, if I'm going to believe in this guy, if I'm going to be engaged in this, then I want to know if there's something that's relevant to me. More than just having a set of moral standards to live by, more than just having laws or rules to live by, more than just having a religious system to be part of, is there something that's relevant to me in relationship to Jesus Christ? And so that's what we want to dive in with today. So here's what Paul writes to the early church In Colossians chapter one, I'll get to read it off of this page right here. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so Paul says to his followers, listen, I want you to know that this Jesus that we worship, this son of God that we claim as our savior, he was not just with God in the beginning, he is God. That he is the one that created. That he is the one who sustains everything. That he is the one who brings life into play and that he is the one who brings salvation. And so Paul writes to this church and says, these are the things you need to understand about God. He is before everything and all powers and rulers and authorities are created through him and for him. They exist, we exist for his good glory. And so then Hebrews chapter one, verses one through eight makes this claim about Jesus. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and he is the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. But again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, here's what I want you to know. When God thinks about Jesus, he says that everything will worship you. And God calls Jesus God. And says, your scepter will be in your hand and you will reign forever and ever and ever. Listen, this Bible tells us that God does not share his glory with another. So the idea that God would say to Jesus, you're God, tells us that God and Jesus are equal. They're the same. And I want you to understand this morning, we could do an entire teaching series just about this idea alone. Like we could spend weeks and months and years on this idea. We're not going to dive into the depths of Jesus and his deity, his godhood, those kinds of things. I'm looking more today to really establish an idea of saying what did the, the original people who followed Jesus believe about him? And what did Jesus believe about himself? And then we see things like this where God says about his son, he is equal with me. He is God. And I will put all things under his feet. And even angels will worship him. Worship is reserved for God alone. And so for the father to say about the son, he will be worshiped, says to us that God and Jesus are equal. Right? And so we see this. And then the skeptics argument around these kinds of things. We, okay, you know what? It's fine for Paul is going to say that stuff. The author of Hebrews, they're going to say those things. Right? They're followers of Jesus. They're creating a narrative they want people to buy into their religious system. They want people to become Christians. In fact, most skeptics would say, man, this idea that Jesus is God, that developed over a long period of time. 
in much the same way that tall tales develop, that we get Paul Bunyan and we get things like that, like over long periods of time, this story just grows and grows and grows. And then all of a sudden, this really good religious teacher who died on a cross starts to have people who claim he didn't just die, he also came back from the dead. And oh, by the way, 200 years later, people start saying, well, the guy that died and we think came back from the dead, and we're also going to say he was a God. He was God. Right? And so skeptics would say that this is, of course, what somebody who was a follower of Jesus would say. They're trying to perpetuate the lie. They want you to believe these things. But here's what skeptics will say. But Jesus never claimed to be God. His followers claimed that he was God. But Jesus never says that about himself. So when you think about that as a Christian, if somebody said to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, what would you say? What would you stand on? What would you be able to show in scripture that would support the idea that Jesus did believe he's God? And so that's what I want us to do this morning in spending some time together. I want to try to address the idea this morning that Jesus did claim to be God. And we as Christians can say with legitimacy that Jesus is God. Um, and so in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, if you want to turn in your Bible there, we'll look at this for just a minute. In John's gospel, there's a story of Jesus healing a man. He's, he's waiting by this pool, and every now and then something miraculous will happen, and the pool will start bubbling up. And the story was that if the first person who could get into the waters, that that person would be healed of whatever infirmity they had. And there's this man who's been living in this area, and he's been an invalid for 38 years. And one day Jesus is in town and Jesus comes up to the guy and he says, you know, tell me about your life story. Tell me about your situation. Do you want to be healed? And the guy goes, well, yeah, I want to be healed. But my, my crippling nature means that when the waters bubble up, I'm never the first one to get there. Somebody always beats me into the pool. I, I'm never going to be healed because I can't get to that place. And so Jesus kind of says, well, I can heal you. <laughs> And he does. He heals the man. The guy who's been laying there crippled for 38 years, he says, just get up, take your mat and walk, go home. Go show yourselves in the temple court. And that's where the story starts to get really interesting. Because that was part of Jewish law. If you've been healed to be restored into society, you go show yourself to a priest. They confirm that you're whole. They confirm that you're healed. If you had leprosy, if you had a disease, whatever. And they would say, okay, you can enter back into normal Jewish life now. And so Jesus goes, go show yourself in the temple courts. Go show yourself to the priest. The problem with that is it was a Sabbath. And healing was not supposed to be done on the Sabbath. According to Jewish law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders believe that healing was an act of work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest to the craziest degree possible. Don't do anything on the Sabbath. And so Jesus now heals this man on the Sabbath. He goes back into the temple courts. And then here's what takes place in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, which made himself equal with God. All right, so I want you to hear this. If we're asking this question, does Jesus ever say he's God? And you go, well, according to that scripture passage right there, Pastor, you, that you just read, Jesus doesn't say, I'm God. 
But I want you to get the context. You're right. Most often, Jesus talks about his divinity in veiled ways. But you have to look at how the people responded. Because what seems veiled to us seemed really clear to them. When Jesus says, I and the Father are both about work. My Father's at work always, and I'm working too. They want to kill him. And you go, why in the world? What is so incredible about that, that they would want to kill him? And then the author of John tells us, John says, because he was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. The crowd very clearly understood what Jesus was saying. For anybody to say, well, Jesus never claims to be God, that's not what his audience heard. His audience very clearly heard him say, I'm equal with the Father. I am God. And if God is at work, then I'm at work. That's why I'm doing these things. So they clearly heard this. And even though Jesus doesn't come out and say, hey, guys, just want you to know I'm God. He talks in these veiled ways. And it's things that we do consistently as well, as, as well, right? Like we'll talk in veiled ways. So right now, if I were to say to you, you know what, last weekend, one of the most disappointing things that happened was when I, I looked and I saw it raining trash all over the place. Some of you would go, raining trash, what are you talking about? Others of you who are sports fans and who watched the Tennessee football game last week would go, oh yeah, we started raining trash and water bottles and beer bottles and mustard bottles. Like, I don't know what, who brought a mustard bottle into the stadium, but, and then golf balls start flying. And all of a sudden in the middle of a football game, you have trash just raining down on the field. And so I could have said, man, one of the most disappointing things last week was it started raining trash. And those who are sports fans and get it and kind of pay attention to those things, they would, without me saying Tennessee football, Neyland Stadium, anything like that, you would go, yep, I know. I'm right there with you. That was so disappointing, so disheartening. I could speak about that in veiled language and you would get it if you're paying attention, if you're a sports fan in this case. For the religious leaders who are paying attention, when they hear Jesus say, the father is always about work, my father is always about his work, and I'm working. They're going, you're claiming to be on equal footing with God. So they want to kill him, right? So it's a very clear thing that they understand. Now look at John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. Because while Jesus doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm God, nice to meet you. He does claim over and over again to be God. And so I want you to look at this. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Like that's what they want to know. Are you the Messiah? Just tell us, just talk it out. Just tell us out loud, be plain about it. And Jesus answered verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good works, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. All right, now again, 
Jesus does not just come out and say, guys, I just want you to know I'm doing these things because I'm God. I have the authority of God. I am God in flesh. He doesn't say that. What does he say? You wanted me to tell you if I'm the Messiah? I told you, but you didn't believe me. Here's how I told you, by the works that I've done. If you guys watch the miracles that I've done, if you know what the prophecies are about the Messiah, based on the works alone, the miracles that I perform alone, that the blind receive sight, that the demons are displaced from people, that the dead are raised. Based on those things alone, you should know who I am but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. They believe me. And then he makes this statement that no other religious leader makes in the whole history of the world. I give eternal life. Other religions, other religious leaders will say, here's the path to eternal life. If you do these things, if you keep these rules, if you abide this way, if you will walk in my truths, then you'll have eternal life. Jesus says, I give eternal life. And so at this point, and he says, I and the Father are one, right? It's a little bit veiled, but it's clear to his audience. And you go, how do you know it's clear to his audience? Look at their next thing. What do they do? They start picking up stones and they go, then we're going to kill you. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just want to know for clarity (laughs) before you kill me, let's just get something on the table here. For which of the good works are you killing me? And they go, no, 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 not about any of the miraculous deeds, not about any of the good works that you've done. Here's why we're killing you, because it's blasphemy. You are claiming to be God. They knew it. They heard it clearly. The things that may be veiled to our 21st century Western ears were very clearly heard to their first century Jewish ears. So we hear Jesus make these claims. We see his audience receive these claims. And even though they didn't believe him, they understood the claims he was making. So I want to take one last example into account. And there are a lot, but we can't spend time to get everything in today. One last example from scripture into account, asking the question, is Jesus God? And this time we're going to find Jesus on trial. The Pharisees are trying to find a reason to kill Jesus. This is the multiple attempts that they've had. We've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill him. How are we going to do it? They bring him to a trial, but they don't have any real charges against him. And so here's what Mark records in his gospel. Mark chapter 14, start in verse 53. It says they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, they came together and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and he warmed himself at the fire and the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands. And yet in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. These guys, even in a mock trial, in a fake trial where they're trying to bring charges, they get, you know what? No, that's not really what he said. I heard him say this. They cannot get their stories to line up. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and he just asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? Can you just imagine Jesus going, answer, answer what? Everything they're saying is just a lie. They can't even agree themselves. Why would I answer? So it says, Jesus remained silent. He gave no answer. 
And again, the high priest asked him, here's the question. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And listen to Jesus's answer. I am. Now, if you just stopped right there, that would be enough. Because in the Old Testament, the way that God reveals himself, the name by which he gives to Moses, when he's going to release the children of Israel out of slavery, is I am that I am. Right? Who are, who are you going to tell people when you go into Egypt and say to the Israelites, I'm coming on behalf of God to bring you out of slavery? Who are you going to give them a name? What name are you going to give? He says, tell them I am sent you. And so Jesus here says, are you the Messiah? I am. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He said, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And so in this moment, the high priest goes, that's blasphemy. You're claiming, and Jesus, again, he does not say, guys, I just want you to know I'm God. But when they say, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. And the son of man will come riding on the clouds. And here's why that mattered to them. Again, it's veiled to us. But for the Jewish leaders, for the religious leaders, they immediately thought of Daniel. And in Daniel's writing, here's what Daniel had to say about a day that was coming when the Messiah would come. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Who did Jesus say he was? The son of man. He said, here was one like the son of man who was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days, God the Father, and he was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus on trial says, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, The religious leaders went. That's what Daniel said that the Messiah was going to do. And here's this guy that we say is just a man claiming that he's going to be the one coming out of the clouds on behalf of the Father to rule and to reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus is making a statement of divinity. He is claiming to be God. Right, And so when we see this and when we hear this, It's very clear. The chief priest even says, that's it. He tears his robes, which was illegal, by the way, according to Jewish law. He disqualifies himself for service at that point. And he says, you guys have all heard it. This is blasphemy. This is someone saying they're God. And so they look to put Jesus to death for that. But here's what I find to be absolutely to give credibility to all of these things in a powerful way. Many of these same Pharisees who at this trial said he's claiming blasphemy, he's claiming to be God, let's put him to death. Many of those same Pharisees within just a few years will be followers of Jesus themselves. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 15, in one of the early meetings of the church, you're going to find that there was a number of people from the Pharisee sect that was there with the church leading out in the name of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. If you had a hand in putting someone to death, 
and you killed them and you watched him die on a cross, would you then place your faith in him as savior if he didn't come back to life? That's pretty amazing, right? To think we had a hand in putting that guy to death, but now we're going to follow him as our savior, as our Lord. We're going to say that he was right. He's claiming to be God and he is God. That's what these Pharisees were doing. They leave everything that their Jewish roots and faith had been about to place their faith in Jesus. So that's one thing that blends a lot of credibility to the story for me. The other thing is this. Later in the, the, uh, the Bible, we get a book from James. And historically, James is the brother of Jesus or the half-brother of Jesus. And James was a skeptic. In fact, early in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching and doing miracles and doing all these things and healing people. And, and James and some of Jesus' other brothers, along with Mary, show up and they try to stop Jesus. They think he's crazy. They think he's lost his mind. And this brother who was skeptical, I mean, can you imagine if one of your family members started going around claiming to be God? <laughs> what would you do in that moment? James is skeptical. But after Jesus' death, and resurrection, and his ascension to the Father, guess who becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem? James. James says, my brother is who he says he was. Now listen, I love my brother. I have a younger brother, for those of you who don't know. He's two years younger than me. He's probably watching from home right now with his kids. His kids love anytime I tell a story about him. And, uh, and so right now, I hope they're getting a kick out of this. But I love my little brother. But if my brother and I created a lie and we started perpetuating this lie and then all of a sudden somebody comes to me and goes, listen, if you keep saying that, we're going to kill you. And they're serious about it. It is not going to take me long to wrap my brother out and go, we we're just kidding. That was a lie. He is an idiot. Like, he's crazy for believing that stuff. I am not going to give up my life for my brother's lie. And he would not do that for me either. But James goes to his death as a martyr, telling people, my brother was God in flesh. And not only James, but all but one of the disciples and hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of followers in Christ since then have gone to their deathbeds as martyrs, saying, we believe this is true. He is God. And so I want us to look at three last things on your fill in the blank just to bring us to a closing point this morning. Because it would be crazy to believe a lie and die for a lie. But what if it wasn't? What if Jesus is God? What does that mean for you? Well, if Jesus is God, here's what it means. Number one, it means everything he said is true and you can build your life on him. If Jesus, who claims to be God, really is God, and it's impossible for God to lie, then everything he says is true and you can build your life on him. Here's the second thing. It means you can have your sins forgiven without having to do anything to earn it yourself. Because the claim of Jesus is that he gave his life up on the cross to pay for your sins, to issue you grace. And to say anything that you've done in your past, anything you will do in your future is forgiven. It's null and void because I've placed my life as a propitiation, 
as a payment to take your place, to pay for your sins. All you have to do is place your faith in me and follow me as your savior. Follow me as your Lord. You yield your life to me because of what I've done for you. There's nothing you have to do to earn this. It's grace. It's given freely. And then here's number three. If Jesus is God, he can change your life in ways you can't even imagine. If Jesus is God, it doesn't matter what you have going on in your life. If you bring yourself under his authority, under his lordship, he'll change you. It doesn't necessarily mean your circumstances will change. It doesn't necessarily mean that life will become sunshine and rainbows. But it means that he'll change how you think, how you feel, how you hope, how you believe. He'll give you purpose and future. He'll give you life beyond this life. When you place your faith in Jesus, it changes you. If Jesus is God, and you place your faith in him, it'll change you. Throughout this series, what we're hoping to do is to be able to share stories with you of people's lives who have encountered Jesus in the ways we're gonna be talking about over the next six weeks. And so today, as we talk about the idea that Jesus is God, that Jesus makes these claims about himself, that people understood that he was God, that they wanted to kill him for claiming to be God, all of these things that Jesus says he is, what does that mean for us? Next week, we're going to talk about the idea that Jesus is unchanging, that no matter what happens in our lives, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. But we want you to hear stories. And so this morning, I want you to hear the story from Paul Wingfield and his story of coming to understand that Jesus is God. So Paul, would you come up and share with us your story, man? Uh, yeah, Joel, thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to do this. He asked me, I think on Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, would you be willing to do this? I'm like, yeah, when? He was like, Sunday. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, sure, I can do that. So I, was, I started thinking, it's been a little while since I've, I've shared my story, so I got to kind of revisit and, and rethink through kind of this, this journey that God, that God has brought me on in my life. And so I think the moment for me when I realized that, that Jesus is God was when my first son was born. But in order for you to understand why and how that happened, I need to kind of go back and tell you the, the con, give you some context of my life before that moment. So I grew up divorced parents. That's all I've ever known. I don't, my parents have never been together. Um, that's just the, the life that I, I have lived. And I started off living with my mom in Knoxville. I lived with my mom until uh, probably right before middle school started, uh, and I would come visit my dad on the weekends, every other weekend, and in the summer, I would come up here, and mom's side of the family, not involved in church, dad's side of the family, involved in church, and so I have these two different, uh, um, kind of, two different family lifestyles, right, and so I was exposed to church at a, at a young age, uh, I remember going to a, a camp and I remember feeling that I needed Jesus to save me. And I remember saying the prayer and, and putting my little, you know, my salvation card in my pocket and, and, and going on. My life didn't really change much, though. I didn't really know Jesus. I wasn't pursuing a relationship with Jesus. I just, I felt like I was uh, going to heaven. And so um, ended up moving up to Kingsport uh, from Knoxville 
came with some some custody battles that involved court and some some just some traumatic things within that itself. Uh, and so I get to Kingsport and starting a new school. I'm starting you know in a new place, trying to find new friends and. Man, I really had the desire to just be liked by people. And so I, I kind of acted like a chameleon. I would blend in with different crowds and all the things that they did, I would do too. But then when I would hang out with this group, I would do all the things that they did. I just, I wanted to be liked by people. I wanted to feel known and feel welcomed by people. And this led me uh, throughout high school, um, hanging around the wrong people, doing the wrong things. And so that led uh, to drug and alcohol abuse and addiction, and that became something that I used to try to fill this, this hole inside of me that I was feeling. And so after high school, I moved to Colorado because I wanted to get away from all the people that were making me do these bad things. Uh, I get to Colorado, and I'm, I was a whitewater rafting guide out there, which is the worst place that I could have went with a drug and alcohol problem, and began to further go into this pit of uh, just addiction and, and substance abuse. And I remember finally figuring out at that time, I was like, oh man, this is actually me. It's my heart that's the problem, not the people that are making me do these things. And so I got into some trouble out there. I came back home, met a girl that would later become my wife. And we, six months after we started dating, we moved to Wisconsin to start a whitewater rafting business with a friend of mine from Colorado. I had just turned 22. She was 21 launching this rafting business like this is so much of my identity and who I am and I found out she's pregnant and I was like oh man okay what do I do (laughs) I know I can't continue to live here we're not around family we don't have help I'm gonna have to go back to Tennessee and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna have to leave this dream of mine uh, to to raise a family and to start this family and so I get back to Tennessee, and, and so much of my identity was in being this rafting company owner, being this guide, being this adventure person, and now I'm having to step away from all of that. And for the eight and a half months up until my son was born, I struggled again with identity of who, who was I, and, and, and man, why, why couldn't I be up there doing that and do this too? And so the, I just really struggled a lot. And I would say even throughout my experience up until this point, Although I had had that encounter with Jesus, my time in Colorado, I'd probably turned into more of an agnostic where I believed in energy and auras. And uh, I guess I was a hippie. I don't know. But it was, I would not call it God. I believed in a higher power, but I would not have named him God or Jesus. Um, and in the hospital on the day that my son was born, this little human, I remember they, they after the experience of childbirth uh, from my wife, or girlfriend at the time, my wife now, they go and clean my, this little baby up, and they give him to me. And I'm looking at this little, this little baby with a head full of black hair and just how overwhelmingly and unconditional I love this child. In an instant, he didn't have a winsome personality. He didn't have any, earn any kind of favor in my life. You know, he just, he just was. He was mine. And in a, it was just like I'm talking to you. God said, because of my son, this is how I look at you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like, I understand I get it. And in a moment, in an instant, I, I came to know that the fullness of the Father existed in the Son. And it radically, radically changed my life. I said, I got to go to college. I got to get a degree. I've got to provide for this family. We got to get in church, which was kind of hard with all of my tattoos and stuff at first. But um, man, God radically began to just draw. He just drew me back to himself in an instant. 
And that was probably the moment that, for me, I realized that Jesus is God, that the fullness of the Father existed in the Son. And that's just one part of my story. I I had uh, five to seven minutes to share, so I want to honor that. But the next part of that journey um, that I would love to share with you at another time and another place is when when I came to understand that Jesus is Lord of my life, too. Those were two different things. I realized that Jesus was God, radically changed my life. When I realized that Jesus was Lord and submitted to that, further radically changed my life. And so that's just my story, and I appreciate the, uh, yeah, the opportunity to share that with you guys this morning. Thanks, Paul. And you have a story. And all of us have to come to this conclusion of what are we going to do with Jesus? Is he God? And if he is, how am I going to put my life in his hands? If he's not to me, then how is that going to change how you live? But we believe, as followers of Jesus, standing in truth, standing on his word, looking at history, that Jesus made claims of divinity, that he died on a cross, that he came back from the dead, that he ascended to the Father. And when Daniel talks about seeing the Son of Man ascending in the clouds, that again is another picture, that Jesus showed physical proof of his ascending to the Father where he sits today at his right hand. And he rules and he reigns over everything. And your life is part of that everything. So my prayer for you is that if you know Jesus already, you'll follow him more fully. If you are skeptical about Jesus, that you'll investigate the truths and the claims about him. And then if you don't believe in Jesus, that today might be the time that you would start a relationship with him, that you would say, I've never believed it before, but I believe now that Jesus is who he says he is. He's God in flesh, the one who gave his life for me to give me life forever. And so we hope that you would join that relationship with him today. And to do that, if you want to talk to me after the service, if you want to find one of our staff, Paul, who is just on stage, we would love to have a conversation with you. If that's intimidating to you, there's a card in the back of your seats. If you're watching from home on our Connect tab online, just fill out the part of the card and then check the box that says, I want to know about following Jesus. And we would love to contact you and get into touch with you to have that conversation. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.